Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. 
In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's guest and today's episode fall in the fun and functional categories because we have the perfect guests for our very special Cinco de Mayo episode. It's the one and only Vince Clark from Georgia, y'all. Now, this sweet man is a swallowing expert, and he can pass a scope like it's nobody's business. So if you're about to partake in a few tacos this evening and you're worried about getting one stuck, well, Vince is your guy. So... Like all of our guests, everybody that comes on First Bite, I like to give you the backstory. And this is my backstory with Vince. A few years ago, when I was just starting out, I was very much a fish out of water. And I was asked to go to Georgia for their state convention to do a presentation. And it was my first real public speaking gig, so to say. And I was a nervous wreck. Um, I had talked a few times in South Carolina, but I was so far out of my turf and panicked. I mean, down to which kind of tights do I wear? Do my shoes match? Like all all of the details, right? But I went and I showed up in Athens, Georgia. And plus that I really need to look at a map more frequently because like I did not have a freaking clue that it was home to the Bulldogs or a college town, but I figured it out really quick when I was surrounded by Bulldog baseball players and a bunch of fabulous Georgia SLPs. And we were like all crammed in the elevator because I guess it was like a home game and the convention. Uh, and I must have really looked like a deer in headlights because I turned the corner completely lost in the exhibit hall. And y'all, if you haven't been the Georgia speech hearing association, they have like all the poster presentations. So there I was lost between the posters and I heard this boom in Georgia drawl and a laugh that made my bones feel like they were at home. And there was Vince. And he took me under his wing and he made sure that my entire stay was joyful. So um, Vince, first, thank you. (laughs) But flash forward a few years and our paths kept happily crossing as the world of dysphagia for all ages is small. And we've had the pleasure of having him come to Skisha a few times. Um, The last time that you came, all the students were trying to pull strings with the board members. They're like, hey, you were my professor or hey, you were my supervisor because they all wanted to be picked to have Vince scope them during his live lecture. And, you know, you love what you do or you love being in 
grad school to do this when you volunteer for a hose in your nose in public. So on that lovely, awkward note, um, Vince, thank you for coming on. And how in the world did you get into this crazy subsection of speech therapy? Uh, well, thanks, Michelle. And it's it's my pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I tell people when they ask about uh, how did I get involved with swallowing and swallowing disorders, um, I remember sitting in a classroom in, I believe it was 1997. And at that time, um, there was not a dedicated class for dysphagia like there, like there is now. Um, or multiple classes for dysphagia, like is commonplace. Um, dysphagia was a part at Valdosta State University of motor speech disorders. And it was probably about three days worth of lecture. That's it? That was it. And that was, com- that was, oh, very, com- that was very commonplace during the time. If you got anything at all. And most people were told, if you work with swallowing disorders, you know, you'll learn that once you get out of school. You'll learn that in whatever your clinical setting may be. But I remember sitting in class and it really speaking to me more than anything else ever had in undergrad or graduate school. And it was fascinating to me that we as a profession had the capacity to diagnose and treat. So I really didn't know what that meant at the time. You know, we talked about thickening liquids. We talked about chin tucking and all this good stuff. And, you know, we were told that, um, oh yeah, you can do this, this test called a modified barium swallow study. Um, we didn't even hear anything, um, related to fees or endoscopy for swallowing. And it kind of stuck with me. And I knew that I wanted to be in in a setting where I could work with people with swallowing disorders. So out of school, you know, that led me to um, a skilled nursing environment. And I did some uh, PRN work at um, local hospitals. But what I figured out within the first five years of being out of school was that, you know, maybe the people that I was learning dysphagia from um, weren't necessarily the most astute at teaching aphasia. So I decided that I really wanted to deep dive into that area and kind of specialize. That's what I wanted to specialize in. So I started paying for my own CEU courses, um, getting anything that I could, you know, um, associating myself with people like uh, um, uh, Lori Burkhead, Dr. Lori Burkhead, people that could mentor me and really teach me about what it meant to be a good dysphagia therapist. You just hit the nail on the head. I get a lot of um, people reaching out asking, well, how do I actually learn about pediatric dysphagia? Because that's kind of where the state of the peds dysphagia world is right now. Some more progressive universities have a semester-long 
peds dysphagia class. Some now split their dysphagia class in half. So it's half dysphagia, half peds dysphagia. But all they can do is scratch the surface. So if you really, really want to get into it, you're going to have to, unfortunately, and y'all, I am still there. Like I, there's still court. I want to get certified in the BCSS licensure, but like I need to take additional coursework before I'm there. And then I want to do NDT training for tiny humans. And you have to be able uh, to dedicate the time and energy and finances to it. So yay you. Yeah. And it's not like we make the money to afford to do this, by the way, just saying. (laughs) Well, you know, I have to say I had a, um, I had a great job with, I worked with a, uh, for 21 years, I worked with Community Health Systems of Georgia. So anybody that may be hearing this that's from Georgia, they would know that organization as Ethica Health and Rehabilitation and um, Integra Rehab. And they were actually very supportive of CEUs. Um, uh, Community Health Systems of Georgia is a not-for-profit organization. So we did actually get a stipend all those years to, you know, go to CEUs and to learn and expand and and to kind of, um, you know, be more progressive than some other SNF uh, skilled nursing facility organizations um, probably were that were more money-driven, that were more for-profit. So, Yeah. They have a beautiful website, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. I'm on they, it right now. Yeah, and some very and some beautiful buildings. They very much um, uh, the the people that I had the pleasure of working with for all those years were very progressive, forward thinking. Um, you know, they were looking at uh, you know building facilities and remodeling buildings where people felt like they were at home, where they felt like they were at a luxury hotel for rehab. And um, so, you know, the, the, the impetus was, was that, um, you know, we would be in a, an environment where we were competing for the best patients. And so in order to appeal to the best patients, um, you've got to have a reason for them to come to your, your facility uh, over over someone that you're competing with in the area. So, yeah, I had a great learning experience. And, um, you know, and I know this talk is specifically, you know, that we were going to discuss fees. Um, it was in 2011, 2010, 2011. You know, I went to my then boss that is, that is also my good friend, uh, Wendy um, Onhill. She's also an SLP. Uh, Vice President of Rehab Services, and I said, we really need to start looking at fees. Um, it is the future. It is it is what we're going to be doing more and more and more of. And as we have progressed and um, had more research in swallowing, you know, we now know that a lot of what we're doing at bedside just doesn't hold up when you when you put it under um, the scrutiny of of research. So uh, I said we need to be moving in 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 that direction. And so around 2012, um, well, actually, I had been trained in in 
going back in time a little bit. In 2009, I'd attended Emory has a annual course, um, but it's more of a general nasoendoscopy course where you, you know, where you learn how to do passes, where you see equipment, um, where you're kind of exposed to both fees and stroboscopy. Um, 2011-2012 is when um, I went to a course sponsored at the time by uh, EndoHD Altera Vision um, and taught by uh, Dr. Michael Crary, where it was a total, you know, three days deep dive into just fees, just scoping for for swallowing and you know once it's it's you know it's kind of like i tell people that that being fees trained being modified trained it's kind of like the matrix once you take either the red once you take either the red or blue pill you see reality as it really is and you either you either choose to ignore that world or you are viewing reality as it should be. And no, I was gonna say that's a nice way of saying either you get on board with an instrumental exam, fees are modified, or you continue to think that you personally have X-ray vision and can see through. You, you continue you continue to to live in a I call I call it continuing to live in a world of cognitive dissonance where you tell yourself that you can do things <laughs> where you tell yourself that you can do things that you can't really do. Um, I'm pretty sure my five-year-old lives in that on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, and that and that's okay. That's okay for five-year-olds, but probably not um, adult clinicians that are you know hold people's hands in their lives. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, bless. Oh, oh my stars. Okay, y'all. Um, Vince and I were chit chat before we kind of got started, and and the whole premise of this. And I know we're doing much better as a profession. And and I remember when I was coming through grad school and I was getting trained, I was taught cervical auscultation. Oscul I don't even think I can say the word right now. Yeah, um, that was close, auscultation. Yes, there it is. See, this yeah. is why I teach people to swallow events <laughs> because I'm not the Arctic phonology therapy. Right. Um, um, and I was taught by a lovely clinician um, that because our rural country hospital did not have the capacity to do instrumental swallow exams, fees or modified, that we didn't need it, that we were fine. We could do cervical, Vince has got the word, and listen through a stethoscope and tell whether or not a person was aspirating by a series of clicks and pops. Um, I'm pretty confident that um, because of that, that's why I'm a hypochondriac when I'm laying at night and I can feel the <laughs> own clicking and popping in my throat. But like, no, that's just arthritis in my body. But um, no, y'all, we can't. And there is science and there's literature out there. And yes, um, Vince's background is adults, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And we've got to understand the basic principles of fees and why it's of merit and why we need to advocate for it for our little ones, especially in our world for the infants that are breastfed. So, um, okay. So you, you kind of gave us some backstory on how you got started with fees, but, um, was that pretty cutting edge when you kind of rolled in in 2011 with it? Like, I mean, that's. So what was, 
what was cutting what was cutting edge about it um you you did have um you did have people like uh, uh Stu Bradley with Carolina Speech Pathology that had been um providing um contract services for fees for probably over a decade um so there were people out there um you know, going into skilled nursing, you know, doing fees as an option. Uh, was it cutting edge? Um, yeah, because a lot of people didn't know about it necessarily. And what was different, what was different about what we were trying to do was we were trying to take it internally. We were trying to do it within our system, which consisted of, of 90 buildings in the state of Georgia. So we were servicing 90 plus buildings. Yeah, so we were servicing from um, Dalton, Georgia, which is up near Tennessee, all the way down to, uh, we had buildings along the, uh, close to the Florida border, all the way over to Alabama, and then all the way over to St. Simons Island. So we were trying to cover the whole state of Georgia. And, you know, what, what we were able to show was that when we were when we were using fees and when we had kind of what I call carte blanche access to it, like if a therapist had a patient and needed a study, they didn't have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get approval. They could just pick the phone up and give us a call and we would show up to do the study. What we were able to show was that adding in doing that instrumentation actually saved the facilities money. We were able to, you know, get people off of altered diets and thickened liquids, and we were able to have rational conversations with nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, uh, MDs. It just elevated the level of respect that they had for us in their eyes. And I and I tell when I teach classes when I when I go out and do CEUs all the time now, you know, one of the questions I get all the time is, or comments that I get is, you know, I feel like the physicians and other advanced practitioners that I'm talking to don't respect me. And I don't really, I don't really try to make them feel better about that because my response is they probably don't because you can never give them a concrete answer about what it is you're doing with their patient. When they give you a referral, when they say, I want you to go to room, whatever it may be, and do a swallowing eval, and you come back and ask them more questions than you provide them answers, of course they don't respect you. You know, when you can come back and say, I did a modified or I did a fees, and this is what's wrong, then they're going to be on board. And that is true for those of us that work in the home health and clinic, um, outpatient clinic setting. We don't have access to these instrumental exams. So, y'all, this is where, um, to quote my sweet friend Leslie, this is where we have to build a bridge with the individual that does the instrumental exam. Okay. And, and one, because... And this was a hard, okay, this was a hard growth for me as a business owner. I, the prior home health companies that I worked for did not send their eval 90-day plan of cares or discharge notes to a physician. 
So because of that, the physicians were honest to God, flying blind as to what it was that we were doing in the world of home health. This run rampant in EI events. It's like, it's like one of the bane of my existence. And so, um, that was a big switch. I started making sure that my eval, my 90 day plan of care and my discharge summary got there when I was treating a patient and that improved the flow of communication. It also made it easier when I picked up the phone to say, Hey, I'm seeing a change in baseline status for better, for worse, whatever it is. I think we need an instrumental exam. They were quicker to make the referrals because they had, um, baseline continuity of care which when you're in home health, when you're in an outpatient clinic, that's hard to obtain, especially when the physician's not right down the hall or around the corner in a cubicle. But then you also have to make sure that you somehow build communication with the facility that you are sending that patient to. Because from me to you, I need to, I need that person doing the diagnostics to know what it is that we are observing that has raised suspicion or what changes happen. Hey, we started on V for seizure medicate or for seizure management, and that can cause a whole host of issues or, um, Hey, they're tapering down off of, um, a different seizure medication, Keppra. They're coming down off of Keppra. And we're having, like, for lack of a better phrase, awakenings. And we're noticing that they're increased signs symptoms for um, hunger and they're wanting more. And, you know, are we cleared to do more than five mLs trials and those kind of factors? So, right. sorry. Continue. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. You're, you're, I mean, you've got it. And, and, um, you know, I tell people all the time, it is, it is, it is hard. I get that we all don't have access um, as we should, but I think. But I think the positive thing about it is, and one of the reason um, you know, that I'm such a fan of fees. Fees is fees is something that you know is in theory portable. We can bring it into um, any location, which to me means that. You know, there's room to start using this stuff in in the home for like pediatric home health, in a clinic for pediatric home health, um, you know, to try to coordinate visits so that, um, you know, maybe you can do it in a doctor's office if that's if that's what you need to do for, you know, more fragile uh, kids or whatever. But there's just this wide open world there that I think um it, you know, I hear more and more and more about people being interested in providing fees for, for pediatrics. And I, and I think that if, you know, our payer sources realize that, you know, we could probably save them money if we, you know, really legitimately knew what it was we were working on with, with some of these kids, that, you know, maybe they'd be more on board with it as well. I have most parents when I recommend it, especially I am, I'm also certified as a CLC. They're really afraid of the tube hurting their infant. Um, and I'm like, no, this is, it's, it's this smaller than your pinky finger. It's just like them picking their nose. That's kind of how I describe it. And um, the pediatrics, the pediatric scopes are probably smaller than a, about the size of a strand of spaghetti. Now, um, you just made my nose itch and run as soon as you said that. <laughs> I'm yeah. totally serious. 
Well, don't 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 be jamming don't be jamming any spaghetti up there. Um, but it's no, but it, no. What you don't know is I had really bad morning sickness with spaghetti noodles, so I cannot do spaghetti. So, like, <laughs> fun fact. Okay, but that and also, but folks, bear in mind that um, different states have different regulations about home based fees. So make sure that. Um, like we're huge proponents of this. Please do this. Please start engaging this in your practice. However, make sure that your state um, licensure allows you to do it in home health. I know a lot more can do it attached to um, uh, an otolaryngologist ENT office um, uh, or attached to a hospital. Like if you're in a um, facility attached to a hospital, but before you go out by a machine and run a spaghetti noodle down a kid's nose, make sure you're legally allowed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking all theoretical here, you know, make sure that you're, you know, up to date, up to date on, on, on ashes recommendations about, you know, your body of knowledge. Um, as a state board member, you know, I'm telling people to be aware of what's in their rules and regulations from a state board level. You will, you will have everything from states that completely outline what you can and can't do to states that uh, do not say anything um, in their, the way it's worded. So there's that whole spectrum. And um, then, of course, you have to know about payer source. You know, what does your payer source allow or not allow, depending on um, who you're sending a bill to? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of talking theory here. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's even doing pediatric uh, fees in home health anywhere in the nation. Um, but it is available, you know, intra office for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you, you talked about fees in the nursing environment, but how this is, I remember when I first started hearing about fees um, and I had, Vince, two ashes ago, I had this amazing opportunity to see Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, who I really want to grow up and be, but I feel like I'm going to turn into like Mary Poppins with a wine problem instead, <laughs> but like Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris. And I got to see Susan Langmore and I got to see, um, oh, bless it. I can't remember her name, a brilliant um, speech pathologist uh, from um, MUSC. Um, and she was focused on manometry entering our world. Susan Langmore was talking about fees and Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris was talking about, um, modifieds. And in that it was one of their master classes, right? Like I paid all the extra money to go see it. And in that two hour long talk, what they did was they compared the same swallow, like one patient going through all three different assessments and how amazing it was. And it, it the whole debate was, it's not, is one better than the other? They're all great. They just tell you different info. So like the whole is, is modified is the gold standard. And yeah. you've brought, and you brought up a, a fantastic point that we have so got to stop talking about in, in versus language because it's not, yes, yes. it's not one against the other. It is what clinical question are you trying to answer? And that clinical question can, you know, maybe it could be answered by either or, or maybe you need a combination of those tests to get the appropriate um, clinical answer. And that's the way we need to be thinking. And then we may also be referring, you know, we're probably also going to be referring to, 
you know, in your case, pediatric GI a lot of times. Um, yes. And ENT, aerodigestive tract issues run rampant. Um, uh, EOE, milk protein allergies, celiac disease run rampant. Um, and and what we're seeing a lot of is when you're talking about GI, um, uh, esophageal stage dysphagia masquerading as an oral stage dysphagia. So insert everybody thinking they need to bust out a chewy tube. It's going to fix all the things. Um, and it won't people, it won't leave them alone, put them in a drawer, let them collect dust. Um, but it's actually a breakdown downstream that's resulting in something on the front end. You know, com- comparing it to the population I used to work with, I saw a lot of patients with gastroparesis. Guess what? Gastroparesis, if you don't know what it is you're treating, looks a whole lot like oral pharyngeal dysphagia. Um, Does it really? Oh, sure. You know, when when you don't have, when you have limited or no movement in your esophagus and your in your stomach and you know gastric emptying and it just fills up. Um, it's one big long tube. What's what's going on at one end is going to affect the other end. I, whenever I have students or whenever I have CFs, you know, one of my examples is I, I hold up a hose and I fill it full of water and I crank the end. And it doesn't matter where that crank is, you're always going to have problems at the top. So you look at pressure issues. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, you you look at you know one of my one of my professors in school, Dr. Robert Johnston, um, said, you know, swallowing is just one big long tube, and we've got to look at the whole tube. Um, we can't just look at you know head and neck. It's it's got to be a, a a a bigger, more holistic picture of the patient. Um, and it's diagnosis dependent. I mean, we've got to understand what those primary diagnoses are going to mean uh, for patients. So in your case, if you're seeing a kid with, um, say, uh, Down syndrome as compared to a child with some sort of craniofacial abnormality, you're going to expect a completely different kind of swallow problem. You know, so you've got to, you, that's where our bedside skills are so important. You know, and, and I think people often misinterpret what I'm saying that what we know and do at bedside doesn't matter. That is not in any way what I'm, what I'm saying. You have to know, you have to know contextually how does it apply to the patient that you're seeing at the time. And something that I found really interesting, like you, um, I, one of my most eye-opening, oh gosh, I think I think about the course and it gives me chills. It was so great, but it was uh, it was a debate between Dr. Stephen Leader, who um, who has uh, uh, unfortunately passed away at this point. Dr. Stephen Leader, um, Dr. Coyle, James Cole, and I think Dr. McCullough. Uh, I believe I'm correct about that. But anyway, whoever it was, you know, they were talking about, do we even need to do bedside swallowing evals? And what I took away from that, from that debate, from that hour long debate was, if you don't know the context of what you're hearing, seeing, being described by the patient, that bedside swallowing eval doesn't do you any good. It's when you, when you do that instrumental, 
that you then um, know the context of, of what all those sound, like you were talking about sounds, pops, clicks, whatever. They may mean something, and you can only put them in context once you visualize them with the appropriate test. Uh, the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program that is so popular now with uh, Dr. Crary and um, Dr. Carnaby, one of the things I took away from them was once you do a modified, once you do a fees, then those noises and belches and burps and whatever that you may see at bedside, then they have context. Then you can use them as clinical indicators. So, you know, it's not that our clinical skills aren't important. It's just in which order we're using them a lot of times. So everybody that's listening, take your bed, take your information from bedside. And I get it. You're in a home. You're not there at a nursing home or a hospital doing a bedside swallow eval. You're with a mom holding up her medically fragile child in her arms because they don't have um, proper seating in the home because adaptive equipment or durable medical equipment hasn't been referred to yet or they don't have anybody nearby. Take what you're seeing during that eval. Convey it to the person that's doing the instrumental. And then y'all have the crucial conversation of, okay, this is what I'm seeing. This is what we saw in instrumental. Now let's create a, uh, a functional plan of care to move forward to help that little one best meet their intake goals. Uh, and again, run that by RD <laughs> because like, <laughs> well, yeah, I always defer to RD. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Okay, so yes, fees is as good a test as modifieds, but tell us why. Can you what what is what, tell us about the fees in particular? What can we see with it? I want the meat and potatoes, not really meat. I'm a vegetarian. Not like <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, going back to the you know what's the gold standard um, conversation. Um, what the way I explain this to people is is. Um, you, you know, depending on what clinical question you have, that's going to be your most appropriate test. So fees gives you a view that is um, complementary to, um, but different than a modified barium swallow study where you're looking, you know, at a, at a, a lateral section and, and, you know, you're, you're kind of um, viewing this, uh, silhouette of a function, you know, um, again, modifieds are a great test. If, you know, the, if you are, if you're wanting to, you know, really examine closely, um, like how esophageal function is impacting oral pharyngeal function, you know, that's your test. The fees is, is more of a top down, kind of like you're viewing the topography of the swallow. And it gives you a in-color live view of whatever your dysfunction may be. People always point out, oh, but you have that whiteout period. You know, when, you're, when your epiglottis covers everything and that swallow occurs. Um, so while technically that is, that is true, you know, whiteout occurs, uh, I think it's 0.38 milliseconds. That's, that's how long it is, 38 milliseconds. Um, of, of, Super of, yeah. So the literature tells us that 
fees is actually uh, um, able to determine, you know, aspiration and why we're aspirating um, at, a, at, a, at the same or slightly higher rate than a modified. Um, Dr. Lori Burkhead said something to me one time that, that I always tell people. She said, if I had to choose between a modified and a fees, that I would choose a fees 51% of the time and a modified 49% of the time. And I, and in talking to her about this and in me developing my own clinical approach, the thing about a fees is, is it's so easy to do with a patient. Um, you don't have to move the patient. They can be in bed. You bring the equipment to them. Some of these small portable systems are just so easy to set up. You can go in, be in and out, done with your test, 15 minutes. You know, you haven't interrupted. You can do it on a breastfeeding baby in sideline yes. position. Sorry. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Sorry. Just trying to get an infant into like yeah. the position in a modified chair. Like you can't do that. That's not their normal state. Yeah. And, and where, yeah. and where, you know, you're looking at, ex, you know, exposing an 80 year old to radiation is one thing exposing a brand new infant radiation is a totally another thing um, because you carry the effects of whatever you're exposed to radiation wise forever. It's cumulative for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, you know, you may have to do a modified that may be clinically appropriate for that infant or young child, but you know, with the fees, you can see if you even need to progress to that next step. Um, for me, from a speech pathology perspective, it makes us so much more independent and knowledgeable practitioners. Um, we're not dependent on a radiologist standing there next to us to do the exam. You know, it is, it is our test. It is our body of knowledge. And, um, you know, despite what, you know, like you were talking about uh, parents being concerned about it hurting their child. It it really doesn't. You know, I've I, I you know I haven't done a lot of pediatric. Um, well, I haven't done any pediatric fees, but I've done between thirty five hundred and four thousand adults. And oh my, Lord. oh maybe That's a lot of noses, man. Maybe <laughs> one, maybe yeah. Yeah, maybe one out of 300 are like, nope, I don't like that. You can't, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, most people tolerate it just fine. Also, for the pediatrics, the beautiful, once they, if it is uncomfortable, when they go to nurse, when they go to latch back on, whether it be at bottle or breast, they have a um, an endorphin release. And so it offsets any fear or that fight or flight fear because they go right back into that nutritive suck pattern. And so that, I mean, there's a whole body of evidence, especially um, See, you taught me the, something the breastfeeding today. literature. Oh, yeah. It's, it's an endorphin release for both the mother and the infant. And it actually, um, uh, it's, it's just beautiful. Yeah, that was... Yeah. I breastfed both of our children and um, the bonding experience, and it actually it helped with my my postpartum, so um, which is very cool. Next level insanity. So, yeah. 
you know, I have one, I have one story about um, fees and pediatrics. And that was, uh, I had a, uh, a, a former CF of mine contacted me and she said, um, I have been, uh, you know, a friend of mine from college has reached out. She's now an RN. She understands that SLPs uh, work with swallowing disorders and she has um, a, a new baby that will not latch, that um, is losing weight the pediatrician kind of keeps brushing it off like it'll get better. And anyway, she's kind of freaking out. And, uh, and I said, you know, I said, I, I really don't know, you know, if the pediatrician doesn't know what to do, I certainly don't, but I would think that, you know, the would be to get them in with a feeding somewhere that did a feeding swallowing pediatric clinic, just like we would with adults. And I said, let me call around and, and find somewhere so I'm not. So I won't name any names or anything. I'm not here to 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 bust on people, but um, found them a clinic uh, in in North Florida, and uh, they took the baby there. And uh, about a, a week later, I thought I would reach back out to my to my XCF and see how things were going. And she said, "Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was about to call you and see if you had any further recommendations. They've been going for a week." Um, it's very expensive and nothing seems to be changing. And I'm like, she's like, what do you mean? It's very expensive. And she said, well, their insurance doesn't cover it. It's $250 a session. And they keep going for quote unquote therapy for therapy. Um, but, but there's no change in the baby. And I said, well, what did their swallow study say? Have they had a modified or a fees? And she said, to my knowledge, they have not. And I said, well, look, I said, again, I don't work with kids, but I said, I think we really need to find them somewhere that, you know, we can refer to uh, to get them a fees or a modified. So we scoured the South Georgia and North Florida areas trying to find a clinician that could do the appropriate testing. We, we called like every hospital, could not find anybody. We finally ended up sending the kid, I think, to a pediatric ENT who wasn't necessarily familiar with doing the fees protocol, but did diagnose the baby with um, floppy larynx syndrome or laryngomasia. So, and so, I mean, this, this kid was literally about to die, was, you know, had been in therapy for two weeks with an outrageous bill and simply doing a diagnostic test would have given everybody all the information they needed to treat the kid. So they used spoon feeding, baby started spoon feeding and completely reversed course, started gaining weight. Um, I think they ended up, uh, did have to end up having some sort of surgery to kind of reinforce. Superglottoplasty. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, my, my, my thinking is, how many people do endless amounts of therapy that they don't need or inappropriate therapy that they don't need because you've never got, you know, this, the, the appropriate diagnosis has never been found. And that's just not an SLP issue. I'm not blaming SLPs. That is a, that is a team issue where, 
you know, you don't have doctors that are informed. You don't have people that are educated to do the procedure. And then out in the field, you're not aware of why it's important to do it and not just feed somebody. Okay. So that, that is, that's where we all practice in a silo. That's, that's, yes, that's the story that I hear all the time in our world where people either say it's a pediatric feeding aversion, it's a behavior and like doctors crack up, oh, they just don't want to eat because they have autism and they're just a picky eater. It's all behaviors. And, or, um, it, I get on my end, oh, they, it, they just have, they just have a rattly breathing. They'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. But laryngomalacia is no joke. Like that can cause obstructive sleep apnea that can cause, um, which causes oxygen deprivation to the brain. I mean, like a whole host of issues. And we hear that all the time. Okay. Squirrel. That's like a whole soapbox. I've actually done an entire episode just on the ring of Malaysia, but we're talking about how, when you actually do the fees, how it tells you why it tells you why a patient's aspirating and if they aspirate, but the why the physiology, I need that. Sure. So, um, you can get a, uh, you know, there are certain things that you can't you know, I, you know, I'm very honest about this. Just like a modified, there are certain things that you can't figure out with the fees. But, you know, point of swallow trigger, um, does the patient have UES dysfunction, uh, base of tongue issues, um, all of those things are very detectable, you know, with fees. Uh, when you're, when you're, when you're an experienced provider, you can easily tell if it is more pharyngeal squeeze issue versus uh, pharyngoesophageal segment dysfunction um, that's causing uh, backup. You, know, you certainly can tell if it's aspirating or not. Um, that's that's not a problem. It's and you can and you can then extrapolate for the most part why they they are aspirating. Um, uh, Langmore said something really interesting in one of her in, in one of her papers, and she said, "A normal swallow of these is super boring. You, you, you look at it, and you don't think you're seeing anything. It's when there's dysfunction that fees shines. So you're able to see, you know, what anatomy and physiology is like. Yeah, you're you're able to you're able to see, you know, for, from my perspective, one of the one of the Great things that fees is um, so useful for is like when patients have swallowing issues post extubation, you can see if they have um, a misarticulated arytenoid or a broken arytenoid. You can see if there is paralysis of vocal fold function. You can see where it's frozen. Um, is it midline, you know, or both, or both folds open? Do you just have one that's working? Um, you can detect all that stuff. And, and I've really, um, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the, in the podcast, but I really think of fees as a study of upper airway function. Okay. How, how is that upper airway functioning in relation to, um, swallowing 
you know, is, you know, do you have someone, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've just got endless stories with fees, but, you know, I, I think back to a gentleman that had been on honey thick liquid for years because he was quote unquote aspirating. Well, he was aspirating, but it was only once you did the fees that you realized he was aspirating on what was coming back up, not on what was going down. So, you know, this, what, what did he have? Did he have um, a, a zinkers? Why? So, you know, um, he had, um, you know, when we're when we're diagnosing those issues, we don't really make a uh, medical diagnosis. You know, all I could what I could see was was this guy had retrograde movement of the bolus. So he would swallow, you know, and after he would drink, after he would drink a little bit, then it would just kind of creep back up from where the upper esophageal junction is. And, and you would see it just spill over into his airway. And it had happened to him for so long that he would just have massive amounts of, of aspiration as a result of it. He never coughed. It didn't bother him anymore. He was completely desensitized. Um, so, you know, those are issues that happen with kids and infants. You have retrograde movement of the bolus. You know, you have esophageal dysfunction. And and so then you know where to appropriately send your patient for treatment. Um, uh, you know, another one that comes to mind was uh, a lot of nursing facilities now um, incorporate nurse practitioners or PAs that work for managed care companies. And part of their job is to be on site and to try to cut down on unnecessary care costs. So apparently there was a patient in, in the building that kept getting referred to speech and the nurse practitioner, she would keep intercepting the, the request for screen and say, oh no, this is reflux. There's nothing speech can do about this. You know, I'm just gonna up their medicine. And, you know, this went on for weeks. So we're into like month two of this increasing cough during um, meals for this little demented lady. And the DON in the building finally said, look, we're used to having speech involved in these type of patients. And whatever you're doing is not working. Can we please get speech involved? So a um, really good clinician that I work with, you know, went and did, or I, or that I did work with in the past, went to the patient's room, did her bedside, and said, something's wrong with this patient that I can't see at bedside. So then she requested a fees. You know, in the nurse practitioner's mind, this was just unnecessary money that, that was going to be spent. So then we had to convince her why we were going to do the fees, what we were looking for. So I kid you not, when we scoped this lady, she had about a tennis ball sized tumor that had grown within her throat. You couldn't see this at oh bedside. Oh my God. Oh yeah. You couldn't see this at bedside. But it was super clear as soon as you, you know, you know, feast her and you saw the changes in anatomy. And it also taught me something else about nurse practitioners, doctors, PAs. They're not really familiar with, with that view. And, and the nurse practitioner had no idea what she was looking at. 
you know, it was, that was our, that but that's what they go through to, I mean, they, they, uh, sorry, I'm not behaving myself. Right. But that's what we should know as SLPs. You know, we should be, yes. we should be the Kings and Queens of upper airway gastric dysfunction. And so we were then able to say, look, you can give her all the reflux medicine you want, but she's got a, tennis ball sized tumor in her throat that every time she swallows her epiglottis hits it and she coughs and then she stops eating. So that's your issue. So, you know, you can't know until you, until you look there. I mean, there's, you know, I think ASHA's guidelines about whether or not you should get an instrumental is you have to consider if the instrumental is going to make a difference in your plan of care or how you're treating the patient. And quite, and quite honestly, I can't think of a whole lot of circumstances unless you just have somebody that is truly in stage, truly terminal, um, you know, truly somebody that just can't tolerate um, instrumental testing where that is true. Um, most 99 point Nine percent of all your patients are going to benefit from testing. One of my big interest areas now, as I'm kind of uh, orbiting dysphagia, is I'm getting more and more into um, chronic cough syndrome, irritable larynx, which which is an issue in in, in pediatrics as well, uh, particularly in in uh, adolescent, uh, not that it doesn't affect boys, but apparently there's a prevalence of this in adolescent girls that are active in sports. And you have to strobe and, and assess vocal fold function to make the appropriate diagnosis. Um, so, you know, that's, that's my soapbox on it. It's, I hope that I think as a profession, you know, I'm real impressed with, you know, how we have moved more towards instrumentation being expected and um, more available over the past 10 years, but we still got a long way to go. Um, and I hope that 10 years from now that um, fees are so cheap and available that it's just something that we don't even think about anymore, um, that we just get them, that we just have them available. I think we're moving in that direction. Uh, it used to be a system, you know, it used to be if you if you had instrumentation done, you were in an ENT office and you were um, using equipment that cost $75,000, $100,000. You can get a system now for 15 to 20. So it's, it's and it's going to keep mm, decreasing in cost, I feel like. Okay, so for the PEDS world... Y'all, when I have, I have sent pediatric patients, I do not personally locally have anyone at this moment in time that's doing fees. I've heard that it's coming through the grapevine, but I don't have that as an option in my immediate area. Slightly further south, yes. But I've had plenty of patients go to an amazing ENT friend of mine. And when they actually go in either in office, they've caught things in office or when they go um, 
bless it. I've had a couple patients and I'm like, we have a failure to thrive diagnosis and we're not gaining any weight and all these things are happening. Um, can you please, um, do a scope? They go into the ENT office. The ENT takes one look at them and is like, we're going to go ahead and schedule you presumptively for the OR because they can see, right. And, um, they'll go in, I mean, they can, you know, they do their bedside, but they also know that they need to do a scope. Uh, they have caught laryngeal clefts uh, with scopes, especially more severe clefts. Um, the bronchoscopy is like best practice for catching like the um, uh, intense level one, level two ones. But I mean, if it's a wide open, very obvious laryngeal cleft, you're going to see it. Uh, we've had uh, intubation damage, uh, webs polyps, uh, nodules prevalent after chronic misuse and abuse. Uh, and when those vocal folds can't meet at midline because there's an obstruction or a tethering issue like a laryngeal web from trauma due to um, stat intubation, especially folks with your, uh, with your little ones that have seizures. I mean, if they're having a severe, say they're having a grand mal and they've been at it for several minutes when they actually get in the ambulance. I mean, they're hitting rocky, bumpy roads when they're trying to, um, handle the patient on a very rural route to the closest hospital. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that listen that a nearby hospital might be 45 minutes away. And so, all of these things can happen in the attempt to save and resuscitate the tiny human. And our congenital abnormalities, uh, Vince, is it, pa- I'm going to butcher the word papilloma from the HPV virus. Is that how we say that word papilloma? They may not know the extent or severity of it. Um, uh, warts, um, there's a reason that mothers are tested for sexually transmitted diseases during their pregnancy, because some of those can pass over and that can actually impact the laryngeal vestibule. And if you have a kiddo that, I mean, the mother may not feel comfortable sharing that information with you during your PMH, the mother may be a legal guardian or the child may be in foster care and they may not know that information. And some of this is visible externally, but you need to have uh, instrumental evaluation. Those are the kind of factors that for me, man, I wish we had fees here. Personally, I couldn't do it. I have a killer gag reflex. So me trying to do it on somebody else, like I gag trying to brush my own kid's teeth. <laughs> so like, this is not my thing to that I want to do, but I need somebody who's got a stronger gag reflex than me to like do this to help my patients. <laughs> like full disclosure, but I appreciate those that can. So thank you, Vince. I'll gladly sit and be on the receiving end of a scope, but I couldn't do it personally. Uh, Yeah. I remember I had to do it one time as a student. My supervisor asked me to hold the scope so she could rearrange something. And I almost threw up on the little old man that had a stroke. And she was like, see, you can let go now. I was like, I I'm sorry. Oh man, I still don't know how I graduated grad school. Okay. All right. So we have like three minutes left, but why do you feel that fees is a great option for pediatrics in your last two to three minutes? You know, circling, circling back to, to kind of the whole theme of, of this talk, To, to me, it, it, you know, again, it's not, 
is fees better than a modified? But it's so much more accessible most of the time. Um, you know, I always, always tell people it's really hard to carry a radiology suite on, on your back. But, you know, we're to the point now where we can tote a fees system, you know, in our hands. So there, there's more and more adult um, portable fees businesses that are, that are springing up. Um, and I feel like there's just this great open space for someone to, you know, partner with a pediatric ENT or a pediatric, even a pediatric pulmonologist maybe, or a pediatric gastroenterologist and, and start doing, um, these scopes so that, gosh, just to put it simply so that we know what it is we're doing so that we are making appropriate diagnoses, you know, so we're not wasting, you know, Medicaid or uh, Medicare dollars or private, you know, know, private funds, whatever. Um, I I just feel like um, there are really no downsides to it. It's all upside. It's just this shift. Um, Again, like you say, it's something that's emerging and becoming becoming talked about more and more and more um, in pediatrics, but it's just a shift that, that I feel like once it starts happening, it's just going to be like a tidal wave and, um, and, and just kind of become the standard, the standard of care. But, you know, um, look for, you know, try to reach out, try to look in your area, try to find, you know, a pediatric ENT or, or some, you know, whatever the specialty specialty may be that, um, is using, is using, um, endoscopy, uh, nasal endoscopy to, to make diagnoses. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that pediatric GIs are also using the naso endoscope to, um, examine the, uh, esophagus, which is becoming more and more and more, common in adults. So you may very well find, you know, a professional that um, is doing that. So you get a a lot of bang for your buck. They can check out the airway and they can keep on going and, you know, see if that GI tracks uh, working like it should. Just a lot of, you know, a lot of options once you start working and once you realize why it's best practices to, to do these things. I hope that answered your question. It does. And I appreciate it because because we need this, because I can't just rely on um, until we have x-ray vision, which I kind of feel like that could happen before the end of my lifetime. Maybe not the end of my professional career. I was a huge fan of Inspector Gadget growing up. So like I got high hopes. Um, but uh, all right. So Vince, if folks want to learn more from you or if they want to speak to you about how they can sweet talk you into coming to their facility or state convention, because y'all Vince packs a room. I can attest to that. Um, how can they reach you? Um, I am, I have a open Facebook page. Um, they are more than welcome to contact me over Facebook. I'm also available on LinkedIn. Um, you know, feel free to feel free to find Edgar Vincent Clark on on LinkedIn. I actually go by Vince, but you know, Edgar's what's on the license, so that's kind of how I present myself professionally. Um, 
And then uh, my email address is Edgar V. Clark. That's all lowercase with no spaces at gmail.com. Um, you're certainly uh, welcome to reach out to me that way. And and I will. Can I let the cats out of the bag that you're coming back and doing another one on leadership? Because sure. that is something that's very near. Yes. So y'all, Vince is coming. Vince is a past president of Georgia, um, and I make a joke about it being called Gasha, which sounds like a wound, which is one step better than Skisha, which sounds like a sneeze fart. <laughs> so like, uh, and and so he. This is near and dear to his heart too. So he's going to come back and we're going to talk about leadership because um, those of us that have old gray hairs uh, need to make sure that we're we're building up the ranks to carry our profession forward. It's a passion topic of mine. Yes. Yes. Likewise. Um, okay. So everyone that's listening, friendly reminder, happy Cinco de Mayo. We appreciate you. Um, Vince, real quick, what is your favorite margarita? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Uh, that was a big sigh. I had to think. I, I don't. I mean, I I love a I love a good margarita. Um, I guess just the traditional one. I've never ordered. Are there other kinds of margaritas out there? See, I get the honeydew melon one because I can't drink tequila. <laughs> so it makes me think I'm at one with the universe. This is bad for everybody. So, um, honeydew vodka melon margarita. It is. Not really a margarita, but at least that's what cantina. I typically like a good, like, you know, just uh, what is it? The the top shelf tequila, margarita, salt, <laughs> just the traditional. Uh, that's yes, you know, I could. But I do like a good margarita. Yeah, but well, I'll let you, when we sync up next time, you can order that and I'll order the vodka version. Go team. <laughs> All right. Hang on. Let me switch this over to questions really quick. Hold on one second. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.